There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is where I was with 20 kids in this closet, or 19 kids plus myself, 20 people in this closet. Seeing the classroom today for the first time um, went better than I thought it would. Um, I expected to sort of be, you know, overwhelmed with emotion, and um, it, it wasn't that emotional. It, it felt like home to me, and the classroom has been my home for three years, and um, I don't think the, the two hours of what we experienced in there, you know, has erased um, that feeling for me. I spend sometimes more time in that classroom than I spend at my own house. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Normally, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions with the focus on craft. But today, we have a guest on the podcast, another member of the Times Enterprise team, Lisa Gartner. Lisa is also a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Failure Factory series in 2015. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times, so I'm lucky enough to work with both of these talented reporters and a third Pulitzer winner, Leonora Lapeter Anton. We'll have Leonora on a future podcast. Today's topic, covering the Parkland school shooting and other tragedies. So first we're gonna talk about the story that Lisa wrote recently from Parkland, and later we'll back up and talk about our initial response to this tragedy and others. So Lisa, can you talk a little bit about Melissa Falkowski and the story you ended up writing? Sure. Um about a week after the shooting at Parkland, I uh, drove to uh, the East Coast and um, I met with Melissa. She was a teacher, a language arts teacher at uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, and she had sh- hidden in a closet, uh, sheltering 19 students with her shoulder to shoulder in there for hours, uh, about an hour and a half, while the uh, shooting was going on. And um, she had been, you know, they obviously they escaped. They were all right. But she was looking toward going back to class in just a couple days, and she wasn't sure if she was ready. You know, she thought her classroom was home. She spent more time there than in her own house. She taught at the school for 14 years and, and three years in that room, and she was worried that going back to that room would be, you know, not that wonderful experience it had been, but a, a one of the terror that she had felt. So she um, she let uh, me and a photographer, uh, Alessandra, uh, tag along um, when she went back on her own to her classroom a few days before students came back because she wanted to make sure that she was going to be okay there, that she, um, you know, if she was going to have an emotional experience or a meltdown, that she could have it on her own terms and not in front of her students so that she could be ready for them when they came back. The story got an awful lot of reaction, I think, partly because so much of the focus had been on the students, Um, and rightfully so. They were were picking up and being very vocal, but the teachers hadn't been much of a focus. So um, I think that was kind of the reaction you got that struck an emotional chord. Um, Yeah, well, part of my background is I was an education reporter for six or seven years, um, which, which I'm constantly reminded, and I saw another reporter for the New York Times say this, it helps a lot with um, all kinds of reporting that you end up doing. 
Um, so I was familiar with, uh, you know, the teachers and what they were going to be having to do in that process. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's important that a lot of the coverage has focused on the students. They have been, you know, heroic in some ways in, in their reaction to this at a time when I'm sure they're going through a lot of pain as well. But it's true, you know, um, public schools are often the largest employer in a district they're in. The, you know, teachers make up a huge swath of the county. And, you know, they were going back, also having been going through this experience, but also as protectors of students who had been going through this. So that was certainly, um, certainly looming. I think another reason that the story caught on is, you know, obviously there was a lot of um, breaking news and there's a lot of breath with that. You know, you're trying to capture everything that's going on and that's important and that's urgent and, and we need that. But uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to take a um, more narrow deeper look, and I think the intimacy of that story um, helped it gain traction. For those who haven't read the story, you can find it by Googling Lisa Gartner and Parkland, and we'll also include it with a link, we'll include the link with this podcast. So, you know, right after the shooting happened and Lane was part of this conversation, we were debating, uh, you know, whether one of the Enterprise reporters should just head on down there and just jump into the fray. And... Lane, why don't you talk about how excited you were not to do that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, that was always the initial, like, shout-out, like, who's going to go down as soon as this happens? And I tried to make the point that maybe we should wait a day or two till all of the breaking news is covered. And, you know, not that we shouldn't cover it as a newspaper, but in terms of sending an Enterprise reporter down to get something different or something deeper or something more meaningful, it might not happen right in the aftermath when all the cops are still there and the blood's still on the floor and the crime tape is still up and there's 30,000 reporters all vying for a piece of this. You know, wait wait till it settles a little bit. Um, I think they made a wonderful decision to send a, a columnist down right away because then we were able to have a voice as a newspaper kind of echoing what all of us have been thinking about, like, what the heck is, why is this happening again? Um, but in terms of finding a story, I, I knew Lisa would be miraculous in finding something nobody else had had, but you can't do that in the midst of the chaos. Well, talk talk about that. I mean, both of you guys kind of jumping into tragedy. Um, you know, what are you thinking about? What are you looking for? What are you trying to avoid? Well, you and I had, uh, Maria, had a lot of conversations about, about that, and I think something we were thinking about is, one, what could we add to the conversation that we hadn't already? And um, and I think we were also looking forward, you know, what was coming up, what was going to happen next, what weren't people talking about. And uh, I think it was you that suggested, you know, we were exploring a bunch of possible angles before I went down, uh, that we see the teachers were going back soon. And maybe we could go back when the teachers came back. So when I got down there, it seemed like they weren't going back for a few days. But, you know, when I heard in, in interviewing this teacher that she was going to go back on her own fairly soon, I knew that could be, you know, a powerful moment in its own. Yeah, but Lisa and I talked a lot right in the aftermath of like, what what hadn't we read? What are, What were we, you know, what questions were in our heads? What were we thinking about? I was kind of obsessed with the the guard at the school that had a gun. And I thought, how did that guy in six minutes, what was he doing? And of course, now we know he was outside. So that story didn't work out. Yeah, there's a reason they weren't getting back to us on that one, on uh, that media request. (laughs) But but you've had, Elaine, you were at Pulse, and we talk a little bit about what happened there. I mean, that was one of those big stories that played out here very close to to the Times. And you guys sent a bunch of reporters. Yeah, I was at Virginia Tech, too. They sent two reporters to that. So 
you know, I think there needs to be, it depends, first of all, what you're talking about, how close is it to your coverage area? Because if that had happened within an hour or two drive, we would have had a million mother reporters boots right. on Everybody the ground. Everybody would have gone. Right. It's all, so this was kind of one of those strange, like, DMZs of, like, is it our story? Is it Miami's story? But we wanted a piece of it, I know, for uh, being a Florida paper. So um, I think with, with the Pulse shooting, we sent a whole bunch of, report, bunch of reporters down with no plan. It was kind of like everybody gets something and call back and figure out what to do with it afterward, you know. Um, but this one, I think they were much more measured about, like, what can we do differently? And, you know, the, the breaking, I think there should be two teams for a disaster like this, just like for a hurricane. You know, there's there's the breaking news, boots on the ground, people that have to go pull all the threads out. Tell you what just happened. Right. What happened and how did it happen? And then there's the second wave of people that might be able to go in and make sense of it more personally or emotionally or, or give it a context, you know. And what do you look at? I know, well, in, in Pulse, um, you, and maybe I don't remember what you looked for at, at TAC and Pulse, you're looking for just anything at all. And, and it, there were so many reporters there. Y'all were tripping over each other, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we had somebody at, you know, two people at the hospital, somebody at the community center, three or four people on the street outside the club, somebody at the cop station. You know, I kind of sat at the Starbucks and was listening to what people were saying for a few minutes just to try to figure out the what piece hasn't been covered, you know. But that's always the really hard part when you're right. I was there the night that after it happened. So it's really hard when people are still trying to figure out what happened right. to figure out where's the narrative and in Parkland, I know Lisa and I talked about like, okay, so we're not the New York Times and we're not the Washington <laughs> Post. So some people are not calling us back right away for that. And we're also not the hometown paper. So there's not that connection. Um, so that challenge is, I mean, you, it's there. I mean, how you work around it, you make a lot of calls. Definitely an incentive to get a little creative and, you know, look under rocks for stories that other people aren't thinking of instead of trying to chase the same story that everyone else is doing. Because if you're doing the same story as, like you said, the hometown paper or the New York Times, they're probably already hitting print on that one. Well, I think it also helps to have almost like a fixer. You know what I mean? It's not like you're going into a foreign war zone, but you almost need a local person to help you navigate. Like I had a high school kid who grew up a block away from the Pulse nightclub, and I think Lisa grew up near where the Parkland shooting happened. And so just making connections to help you make connections locally, hyper-locally, is really important. I was I was terrified of going out to Parkland without a plan. Uh, you know, I spent a couple days uh, just trying to call and email um, as many people or tertiary people as I could to try to figure out, like, you know, just have one thing that I know I'm going to have when I get there. Because otherwise, you know, I pictured myself... Um, and if you've been to Parkland, it's, you know, an affluent bedroom community. There's a Barnes & Noble, there's a Starbucks, and there's, you know, some community, like, gated communities, kind of like Russian nesting dolls, where it's, like, nice neighborhood inside nice neighborhood. Um, so I, it just seemed like I, I, I was terrified of going there and just, like, driving around, like, stopping at a Starbucks and being like, so, you know, what do you know? You know anyone? Like... So um, less than 24 hours before I left, I got uh, very lucky because I wasn't hearing anything back from the obvious players who were, of course, being mobbed by every reporter under the sun, you know, the superintendent, the school board, the principal. Um, I had a, a friend who was from Parkland. Her dad still lived there who put me in touch with her younger sister who emailed her friend who had had this teacher um, and she said, okay, she agreed to talk to you. And I got very lucky because it was between two news cycles. You know, the urgent breaking um, interviews had subsided. You know, she talked to CNN, to Jake Tapper, to Anderson Cooper, to, you know, Good Morning America, you know, 
start making up names of shows that have today and sun in it or something. But uh, Trump hadn't yet quite started uh, tweeting about his ideas of arming guards or arming teachers or how he would have run in, you know, to pay flying. But um, so she was able to sit down with me for three or four hours uh, and we were able to do, you know, a very intense, frankly, but um, very detailed and intimate interview. Um, and then almost that night, she got busy again. So there was a bit of luck with the timing. But, you know, it was also strategic, you know, with Maria deciding that we would, you know, hold back a little bit and, and come down when the time was right. I want to I want to come back to that point about the reporting and how you work this out. But I, I thought we, um, we'd like to read here. So I thought we'd stop for a minute and let Lisa read the beginning of this story, um, which uh, is framed around this teacher going back into the classroom, so. Get my NPR voice going. She was afraid of what it would feel like, but she needed to know, so Melissa Falkowski pulled into the faculty parking lot. She took a deep breath in through her nose and climbed out of her car. She was back in front of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. It had been a week and a day since the language arts teacher had hidden with her students in her classroom closet while a gunman killed 17 people with an AR-15 rifle. Melissa, 35, had often said that she spent more time in her classroom than at her her own house, that Douglas, where she had taught for 14 years, was home. Now, as she walked toward the entrance, she wondered if she knew where she was at all. In the past eight days, she had lost 10 pounds. When the bedroom light ticked off, she stared at the ceiling. She took calls from Anderson Cooper, Jake Tapper, The Today Show, and Good Morning America. You try to do the best you can for the kids you are supposed to keep safe, she told them. As a journalism teacher, Melissa wanted to answer their questions, and keeping busy kept her calm. But when the microphones were unhooked from the collars of her Douglas t-shirts, she found herself thinking back to that day in her classroom. Driving her nine-month-old daughter to daycare, Melissa couldn't stop sobbing. What if I'm not safe, her son asked the day after the shooting, when she woke him up for school. He is in the first grade at the elementary school down the street from Douglas, and her husband didn't want to send him. But Melissa knew they needed to do anything they could to feel normal. She kissed her boy and told him that his teachers would take care of him. And that's what she was trying to do now, walking up the concrete steps to the second floor hallway that housed her classroom. She didn't know what it would feel like to be in there, and she didn't know if she'd be able to step into the supply closet where she and her students had tried so hard for nearly two hours to not make a sound. But her students were coming back, some as soon as Sunday to get their things, and Melissa needed to make sure that she would be okay in there for them. So she turned her key in the lock and opened the door. So, yeah. Um, I was going to ask you guys to talk a little bit about the um, that idea of, of having some time to do some pre-reporting. So you're in there, as you did, you had four hours with her where you're getting your her backstory and you know she's telling you about that day and then you go watch them which is there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, obviously what you try to do a lot with narrative work, 
You want to, you don't want to interrupt the moment. You want to be in the moment. So how does that, how do you take that? And how did that inform the day for you? So you were with her, you're finding out about who this woman really is. And then how did that help you the next day in terms of what you were watching? And then Lane, maybe you can talk too about what you've done in the past. Sure. Well, I'm, I think you're absolutely spot on. You know, you want to get sort of the entire backstory outside of the scene so that you're not interrupting or changing the scene. And, you know, there'll be times in reporting where it's inevitable or you can't get around it that you get the scene and then get the backstory. But I liked um, getting it first because it really informed what I was seeing. You know, when I went in there, I kind of knew what had happened in there. I could see how things had been affected, you know, whether it was furniture that she had moved or, you know, the closet and the things that the students had left in there. Um, So, yeah, at that point, you know, when I got there, I really only had the sit-down interview scheduled. I was hoping that I could talk her into um, letting me follow her. I was hoping that there would be an opportunity like her going back to the classroom, but I didn't know. And that was something that, you know, kind of came up, you know, small peanuts at first and then was sort of the crux of the interview at the end was asking that. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I knew that I, I would need a scene um, to really show what her life was like in the aftermath of the shooting and that uh, giving that the context uh, gleaned from the interview which, you know, would span much more than made it into the story. I like to, especially if I'm talking to someone about a day like this, walk through their entire day, you know. So we were doing the exact minute her alarm went off, you know, what her workout at the gym was like this morning, if she met her father there versus whether he met her at home and drove there. Because, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, and you want to get everything that could possibly matter. Um, And it was was good. It um, It felt like a good conversation. Lane, have you had that opportunity before, too, where you could separate the, the, you know, finding out about them first and then getting the chance to watch them? Yeah, and I agree with you. It's better if you can do that first. I mean, I've had it happen before where I witness a scene and then stop them and go back and re-interview them about what was happening, what was going through your head, whatever. But if you can get it ahead of time, it helps you to know what you're looking for a lot more, right, when you're there with them. And and I love the fact that you didn't, in that scene, you didn't go back and have her be retrospective about, like, how did that feel, what did it mean? You kind of ended when she left the room. So it was all the, the build-up to the action, not the reflection on the action. And I thought that was really effective, you know. Um, Let's talk about Thank the you. ending, because you and I both, uh, I think Lane and I both had the strong reaction. I love to the, the ending. Yes. So, um, you know, so for those who haven't read it, you know, Lisa follows her through the classroom that, that day, and as she's leaving, she, she goes to close the door, and then she catches herself, and she heads back to the closet where they had been hiding, and she closes that door, but Lisa notices that she leaves the light on, and and that's the detail that she ends the story with, and I think, um, you know, it's such a credit to her as a reporter, and I think to the best writers who come away with those kind of details, because I, you know, some people wouldn't have even registered that or wouldn't have noticed that so you know describe that a little bit I mean what do you are you just you're looking still you're not you didn't put away your notebook you didn't like start walking out you were still trying to take everything in um well thank you um it's I love kickers we talked about this when you interviewed for the times is that you know and coming up I was like all about the lead but I, I really I love a good kicker um and I think they're successful when they kind of tell you something that you didn't necessarily know or push the story forward or make you think about things a little bit differently. 
um, I think having the benefit of uh, having that long conversation with her ahead of time really um, helped key me into what the emotional components of her classroom were. I knew before talking to her that she had hidden in a closet, but uh, going to the classroom and seeing it kind of, you know, you could tell that that was sort of the emotional crux of the story. And um, the moment she did that, you know, she um, she went back and closed the closet door. I knew that was going to be important. You know, why would you go back and do that if you didn't still have these messy, complicated feelings about this place? And why would you leave the light on? And I loved um, I loved that in that moment. And I knew it was going to be my kicker as soon as it happened. Because, you know, she had stood there and she had felt it out and she had, you know, sort of declared like, you know, this isn't going to ruin my experience. This is going to be a happy classroom. I'm going to be fine. But something about her going back and needing to close the door but not turning the light off to me suggested that, you know, it was still something that she was working through, that she didn't want it to be dark in there and she didn't want that door to be open. So um, I I liked ending on that note. It's a little messier than just like everything's going to be okay or everything's terrible. But I do think it's true to real life that, you know, things are things are messy. That's what I thought was so effective. I mean, like, right, because, yeah, you don't. It was quiet and it it wasn't a summation. It wasn't a quote, which so many of us like fall back on as an ender, you know. And it was a gray. It wasn't a black and white ending. And I love gray endings because it's like she's saying she's going to be all right. Everything's going to be great. But, but yeah, like, no, it's a mess. I'll leave the light on. But I'll leave the light on. Can you talk for a second about your decision to include um, texts between her and her husband? Because there was a sidebar that went with it that was those in the moment with her texting her husband and a super cute bitmoji that you added in there and well, too. But I just thought that was such a nice compliment to that story. And it spoke to this whole other level of personal terror and communication. Like she's trying to keep her kids safe in this closet, but she's also got a husband and two little kids herself. Um. I think it's I think it's easy in these situations to think of um, like school shootings or other people's experiences as other. You know, this happened to them. And when I saw the text between her and her husband, I thought it was just so incredibly relatable. I mean, I think we all wonder what we would do in that situation. And I think we would have done the exact same thing. You know, I wrote a, a travel story a couple years ago about how I got um, lost hiking in Europe. And I, I fell down a mountain and had to be rescued by a helicopter, which is a whole nother thing. But, you know, the thing I did as soon as I had service was I texted my parents that I loved them. I didn't even tell them I was in danger, just I wanted them to know that. So I, I that stood out to me because, one, I thought it was very relatable um, and just showed that, like, this exists within our universe. This is not other. Um, but I also liked the contrast of, like, it being a normal day. And that's why I included all the details about Valentine's Day and that I love the bitmoji of him wishing that to her because this had been just about something else that we had all been experiencing. And then suddenly it was about this whole new terrible thing. Did you ask her for the texts or did she offer those up? I asked her. She, um, I was asking her about timeline and she was telling me she was texting her friends and she took out her phone and I was like, can I see the texts? And then I'm thinking in my head, there's no way she's going to give me screenshots. I was like, but I should ask and then have her say no. So I asked and there was just no hesitation, which I appreciated. Um, so we were able to share those. Um, and those were pretty crazy. I mean, she was texting with a teacher who had been nicked by a bullet and seen another teacher shot dead. Another had had two of her students shot. Um, it was just it was surreal and yet 
you know, very real at the same time. I feel like a lot more texts and tweets and Facebook posts are going to make it into our reporting of these things. Like, it's, well, it's, uh, there's it's nothing a, more on the ground and intimate than that. It puts you in the moment, doesn't it? I mean, like, that's such a. I wanted to make a point about, you know, so what Lisa was saying earlier, so she had all of this reporting. And in fact, at one point, um, and I don't, this is a necessarily a model for you guys doing uh, following big news stories, but she turned in her draft and then she turned in a list to me of things that she had that didn't make it into the draft. So it was kind of like, here's some other stuff, like, and, and here's a bunch of other stuff. And like, okay, what, what strikes you? What, what should we talk about putting back in there? So I think um, it was a very spare story. I'm sure there's there's a lot that you left on the cutting room floor, which is always, I mean, right? I mean, that's always going to happen. And I think um, some of those choices were about keeping us in that moment, right? As much as keeping us, we had two moments. We had the moment in the in the classroom, and we had the moment of that day, and just trying to make both of them as as spare and as tight as possible. And did you think that's another bonus of going in several days later? Because you're not having to cover all the ground of what happened and broke in the news cycle the, for right. the last... People are sort of familiar with it to some degree, right? That's true. It's hard to imagine a graph in there that was like, police arrested Nicholas something for yeah. shooting at this time, you know, it was... Much true. If you'd done it earlier, you probably would have had to put more of the news of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about... We're uh, going a little long, but talk about... Um, covering tragedy and walking away from that I know in the moment the adrenaline is probably high and then when you step away from it it's got to be pretty emotional and difficult so can you guys talk about just this one but also other ones you've covered um as Maria can attest I was extremely nervous and stressed out before I left for Parkland just and I've done some reflection on why that was Um, part of it is it was close to home I grew up 45 minutes away from Parkland. I've been there before. I have friends. My mom's a teacher. And it's a terrible thing. And it's it's hard to mentally prepare yourself to, to drive over there and, and hit the ground running. Um, I was stressed about, you know, not knowing exactly what I was going to do, but that's my own cross to bear. Um, but I think one of the reasons that I was so nervous, and I've experienced this with a story I wrote before about a, a girl who was dying, is that it's very it's very important and I want to get it right. You know, like these are, we've talked about this when you interviewed Maria, but I mean, on to some level it's my story because you could send 10 people to do it and they would all do it differently. But I also think it's, you know, it's not my story. It's someone else's story. And if I'm going to go in there and, you know, disrupt people's lives, I want a good to come out of it. I, I, I want to do my best job. So a lot of stress on the front end. When I was there, I was fine. Um, you know, I was working sun up to sundown, you know, um, got there, got out of my car, started interviewing her, finished, started transcribing, was up late doing that, went into the classroom the next day, started writing, wrote all night, and then it was kind of over. And I was, I was fine. Um, and I got home uh, late Friday, and I woke up in my own bed Saturday, and I felt... Uh, awful. I felt like I had the flu. I felt like I'd been hit by a truck. Any cliche you want to say. It was as if I had uh, compartmentalized everything she had said to me and all of the grief of it. And it had just all come when I was mentally ready for it, uh, when I was done working. And I spent Saturday and Sunday just weeping and and napping, (laughs) which I never do. But I was so um, emotionally and and physically exhausted. Just very, um, just 
fragile. And it, it struck me as ironic when I saw, you know, a tweet from someone that uh, journalists love mass shootings, you know, if it, you know, we want to capitalize off of them and push some agenda. I, you know, as great as, you know, as I feel about how this story came out, like, I wish this had never happened. It is extremely hard to cover these things. And, you know, even when we're strong and, and, and tough and, and handling it, it's, um, it's very real and it's, it's very sad. And, and I go back to my first point is that we just try to do the best job we can uh, in those circumstances to honor the people that we're writing about. Lane, how about you when you've had these kinds of stories to cover? You know, the only two times in the 30 years that I've ever been ashamed to be a journalist were after covering Virginia Tech and Pulse Nightclub. And I think all of us share the terror you do going in a, a situation like that. You know, what am I going to do? How am I going to navigate this this world? But being part of this pack of journalists that come from literally all over the world and descend, you know, I like being the little person with my little notepad and my pen and sort of just trying to find a, a little quiet corner and a one single person to talk to. But you're in there with 300 journalists with fuzzy microphones and huge TV cameras. And it felt like I, I wanted really hard in those two situations to be like, I'm not one of them. You know, I want to listen to you and talk to you. I don't want to cover just this overview of the horror. The horror, the horror is the words that keep coming in. It felt like that after hurricanes, too, a lot of times. You know, you, you carpet bag in to get the stories and everybody wants to tell a good story. But you're pouncing on these people in the most horrible time of their lives and some of them want to open up to you and share, and it's kind of cathartic for some people. But I also have to get past the guilt of, like, making people talk about this again. Like, I'm so – I apologize. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to make you talk about this again. You know, because you know they've been dealing with it for however long. All right. Again, if you want to see the Parkland story, you can go to our website or always easier just to Google. Google uh, Lisa <laughs> Gartner and Parkland, and you'll find the story. Uh, if you have questions from this episode for Lisa or Lane, email writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week for the next podcast on Wednesday morning. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.